You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I can't remember how long ago it was, but it was a while ago. I ran into this guy whose level of curiosity kind of met my own. And him and I have been in touch for many years now. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, you might remember Alex Alsup from his work with the Rocket Community Fund. He is now at an organization called Regrid. And Regrid and Alex are doing some just amazing revolutionary stuff. I asked him to come back on the podcast and chat about it. From Detroit, Alex Alsop, welcome to uh, the Strong Downs podcast. Nice to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Chuck. It's nice to be back. You are recording from your basement, which I, I, I said that I admired. People from the South don't understand how important and cool basements are. Right, right. Right. But if you're in the North, I mean, just from a structural standpoint, once you have to put your foundation down, you know, five, six feet in order to get below the frost line, you might as well go eight feet and have a nice basement. And so we are admirers of good basements, right? Right, right. Yeah. You got to have at least two ways for water to get into your house, right? The roof isn't enough. You need a basement too. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes from above and below. Exactly. I, I hear you. I hear you. I live in this nice Minnesota sand. And so, uh, you know, solid foundations and no water coming up, which is which is really nice. But I hear you. Most of the country's not in glacial outwash the way we are, but we'll see. I'm, my house will someday be under two miles of ice again. So we're you know, prepared <laughs> for that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about you going to regrid. I'm aware of the story, but I, I think it would be interesting because I, I want to ask you about some of the work that you're doing there. But talk to me a little bit about, I know that this was an exciting opportunity for you because your your heart is kind of a philanthropic one or one that, you know, as I, as I said at the beginning, you have this level of curiosity about things that matches my own, which makes us good friends. Talk a little bit about Regrid and, and how, they got, how they got you interested in coming over there. I've got a long history with Regrid. I was the first employee at Regrid back in 2012 when it was the the artist formerly known as Loveland Technologies. A Prince reference since you're in Minnesota. No, no, um, I, I totally got it. Yeah, um, oh, the I'm thing sure is, did, is that I didn't realize at the time how appropriate it was. <laughs> I mean, no offense, but nobody had heard of Loveland Technologies. When the artist formerly known as yeah. Prince, like he was True. better known yes. as Prince. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. No equating there intended, of course. I was the first employee at Regrid back in 2012. I was there for four or five years when we were mostly focused on doing work in Detroit, collecting a lot of data at the parcel level around property tax foreclosure, blight, vacancy, things like that. When I left Regrid to go over to the Rocket Community Fund, it was because I really wanted to work on a lot of the issues that we'd identified using parcel level data at, at Regrid and try to drive those issues forward from the Rocket Community Fund, which was one of the few places in the city that was really aware and understanding of these issues and willing to invest in them. And so I worked on you know issues related to housing in Detroit for five years over at the Rocket Community Fund and saw a lot of progress. I was just writing something up on my 
Substack, uh, the chargeback a couple of weeks ago, looking at the declining levels of homeowner property tax delinquency in Detroit since the beginning of the pandemic. And the number of Detroit homeowners at risk of tax foreclosure has fallen 66% in the last three years. We've seen these enormous, enormous, yeah, there's really, really significant progress in eliminating tax debt. Can I say something too? And I'm going to say this because I don't know as you will say it, but I'm going to say it. Your work at the Rocket Foundation there's a lot of people working on this and there's a lot of people, but I really feel like the way you strategically approached it there and the way the Rocket Community Fund looked at this was a huge difference maker in that and had a huge impact in that. So that's my that's my assessment as someone looking at the scene. Thank you very much. And of course, there are a lot, lot of people working on this and, and I have to you know throw the compliment back to you because it was very much the Strong Town's approach that we used, right? It was, what is the first smallest thing that we can do for people? Identifying that through humility and observation, and then doing those things as quickly as we could, and iterating and and growing them. You know, one of the things that I observed, really working with like the Strong Towns method, was that it doesn't grow linearly, like a lot of (laughs) public policy does. Yeah. But you hit a point where you get exponential change. And that's really what we felt, where it was like you kind of felt like the progress is is slow, but you you know what you're doing. And then as you keep iterating on it, yeah, you do hit this hockey stick point where it's like, oh, we have really accelerated past anything you would get out of a sort of like traditional top-down, you know, linear approach. So that was really cool to see and experience is just how uh, that methodology can drive change in, in a much more dramatic way than like traditional uh, policymaking and, and decision making. But anyway, so, you know, after you know, five years working on these issues from the Rocket Community Fund and seeing a lot of progress in Detroit, you know, Regrid, which I used every day to drive my work at the Community Fund and inform my work at the Community Fund, uh, had really grown well beyond just working on parcel level data in Detroit and has now amassed just about every parcel boundary in the country for just about every property in the country. I think there's only 20 counties or something like that where we don't have parcel data, but our our, our parcel data covers 99.9% of the US population at this point. And so, you know, we have this team that all they do is they have they basically have this parcel gardening operation where they are perpetually moving around the country, trying to always increase the completeness, uh, currency and depth of coverage that we have for both our parcel boundaries and the underlying assessment data. Uh, and so we, we, you know, ingest all of this parcel data and, and uh, assessment data, standardize it nationally into 120 columns of data, and then uh, Regrid licenses that data to companies, nonprofits, researchers who need parcel data to drive their uh, their work, their business, their their research, their mission, whatever it may be. I really wanted to come back and work with Regrid with data at that scale and with use cases at that scale. And I felt like what I had learned at the community fund, sort of having been on both sides of both, you know, Regrid in its early days, and then using regrid data, what I'd learned from places like Strong Towns and putting that into, you know, 
real contact with reality at the Rocket Community Fund was something that I wanted to do in, in more places. And, and, and for me, the sort of like fundamental like material that that work happens with is, is parcel data. It's, it happens at the parcel level. And so that, that national coverage of, of data that Regrid has is really compelling to me. It's an, it's an astounding data set. I want to ask you about property taxes and assessments. When you have a data set this big, you can start to see trends and anomalies and you can ask questions and you can dig into things. I'm going to give a little bit of a narrative just to kind of set the table here because I have been astounded by the kind of antiquated nature of of property tax assessments. Everybody who owns a home or owns property is like vaguely aware of the assessment process. Someone from the government comes out and sets a price on your place. And then that has how they base your, if you're in a property tax system or a land tax system, that's how they, they base your taxes. I think it's shocking to people how kind of primitive this approach is. I have seen as recently as two years ago, assessment offices that are still using crayon drawings and note cards to do this work. You know, and you talk about your work at Regrid being, I remember the early days of GIS, you know, 20 some 25 years ago where we were seeing, wow, we can put a parcel map together. Like this is, this is mind blowing. Assessors seem like the last group of people to really be nudged into adopting these kind of things. Let me give an analysis as to why. And then I want to hear your thoughts. I feel like one of the reasons why is that they're really not trying very hard to get it right. They're very, very sensitive to people who complain about their assessment, but they're not very interested in getting it right. They're not as sensitive to that. I think you would say as a group, if you ask them, they would say, we want to get it right. But you know, that's like saying, I want to be uh, you know, in really great shape, but I'm also very sensitive to other things in my life that keep me from working out as much as I want and uh, eating as much you know, the way I want, getting as much sleep as I want. I'm sensitive to these other things. I feel like the assessment process is very sensitive to people who make complaints and people who fight their assessments. There's nothing you want less as a kind of assessment officer than to have a long list of people lined up to complain about their assessment. And so we tend to have a system that doesn't get it right. But let me pause there and let you react to that a little bit. And then I want to talk about what you guys are are doing along these lines. Yeah, I mean, I think in Detroit, this is where I've had the most contact with the issue. And obviously, assessments have been a big issue in, in Detroit over the years. I think that that's right. And and then, of course, for all of the uh, aversion to, you know, complaints, you're still going to get them no matter what, right? And it's always going to be the people most able to make the complaints, which are higher valued homes and higher valued homeowners and property owners that are going to be making them. So yeah, I don't know that you really are actually like insulating yourself from very much because the challenges are still going to come. And I think there's also like a, there's just a, there's a fundamental, not that many people speak assessor, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, right, on, sure. the, on the, the sort of just resident side of, of the equation. So I think that there's a very specific and I think at times insular language that assessors are very well versed in and that the public has really no access to. And like, why would they? And it's just, it's not, 
it's not a part of their day to day. You know, it's just when the property tax bill comes that you think about it, whereas the assessors are thinking about it pretty much all the time. And so you have this these people communicating on very, I think, skew lines. It's, it's difficult for them to relate to one another. Um, that's that's definitely something that 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 I've observed here in, in Detroit. And one of the things that informed, yeah, as you alluded to, some of the the, the work that I've done at Regrid on this on this topic. Right, but if but if you were really interested, like let let's say that your obsession was being a great assessor, like I'm going to get property values correct. To me, your approach would lean more on the analytical data like you all have put together. And I, I think this is where, to me, the assessment gauge that you put together for Detroit is painful because it points out in an almost embarrassing fashion the obvious discrepancies in an approach that's not based on how do we start with data and get it right and then nuance it. It starts with how do we avoid complaints and then end up with stuff and it when you do that for decades, it gets really messy really quick, right? Talk about the assessment gauge, because I think maybe people should know what that is and, and understand it. And The Detroit assessment gauge is sort of a proof of concept that we put together at Regrid that seeks to help homeowners in Detroit understand, or probably I should say re- residential property owners in Detroit understand how their assessment compares to that of homes around them. And so, again, this sort of comes back to this, um, the language that ass- assessors speak versus the language that residents speak. I think there's two ways to approach this topic, right? As you said, there's there's the approach of informing the assessment process itself and saying like, hey, there's more data out here that you can use to arrive at better judgments, better assessments, and here's how you can do that. The other side of it is to approach it from the resident's perspective and create a way for them to look at the end result of the assessment process and just understand how to evaluate how they stack up to other things around them that are like them. Uh, Cause that's ultimately what you're supposed to be able to do with your, you know, a defensible uh, assessment is see that comparable homes are assessed comparably. And again, I think this is sort of, trying to bridge that communication gap for residents and say, look, here's a very simple way to look at your home, look at other homes around you. And it's a basically a color-coded map, right? Like if things are really dark red and like the temperature looks kind of off the charts, that's an indication that your assessment on a per square foot basis compared to other similar homes within your census tract is likely out of whack. Um, on the other hand, if it's way, you know, on the on the dark green side of the, the temperature gauge, that's an indication that you're probably not overassessed. You might be underassessed, but that's not really your problem at that point. That's that's again, you know, evidence of of an issue in the in the assessment process itself. And so, you know, when homeowners come to appeal their assessments, I think anywhere really, and if they're especially if they're doing it themselves, they're not familiar with the process and the terminology around it. Again, it's there's rarely a common form or basis for communication between homeowners and uh, assessors. And so this is trying to give a simple way to kind of bridge that gap, right? Here's what your home looks like in terms of its assessment compared to that of similar homes around it. Here's all the data points, you know, relating to your home and its assessment. Take this and go show it to the assessor. 
and see if they can tell you why it's assessed that way and justify it or or if they can't right then then that's your that's your grounds for an appeal it's again trying to create a, a, a sort of bridge across this language barrier for for homeowners and, and and assessors to be able to relate to one another a little bit easier i know you've chatted a lot with joe minicozzi at urban 3 they've been doing the just accounting project which has looked at stuff in you know near asheville and buncombe county and and other places and I, I've been involved with them too on that project. And I have seen how in general there, well, not in general, across the board, it is the poorer homes that are largely being A, overassessed and B, having their assessments kind of randomly skewed higher. And it is the the wealthier homes that appear by by all the data that's able to be collected, including looking at when sales happen and all these things to be massively under assessed. What kind of thing are you seeing in Detroit along those lines? I know Detroit is not as affluent as the Asheville area, so maybe the disparities, but what are you finding in the consistency of of assessments? No, I, I mean I think that it's very it's very similar. Yeah, there may be less fewer higher valued homes in in Detroit than in than in Asheville, but you certainly see the same sort of phenomenon you know, one of the insights that we sort of got from the assessment gauge is not only do you have these issues of inequitable assessments, which isn't exactly what the assessment gauge that, that, that we created looks at, but certainly there's other evidence of inequitable assessments, by which I mean, right, higher valued homes taxed at lower effective rates than lower valued homes. But when you look at the lower valued homes, their assessments are also inconsistent when compared to other lower valued homes. So not only, right, not only do you have this inequity in assessment between higher value and lower value homes, you also have enormous inconsistency within the valuations of lower value homes themselves. And one of the things that that I found in in Detroit is that ownership, the kind of ownership has a relationship to that inconsistency. And what we found is that the more underassessed a residential property in Detroit is, the more likely it is to be landlord owned, to be a, a rental property. The more overassessed a property is, the more likely it is to be owner occupied. And so you see these differences in ownership manifest in the inconsistency in assessments as well. I understand where it comes from, right? Landlords are much more likely, especially in a place like Detroit, where we have a lot of landlords who have big portfolios of single family homes, and they just hand the whole portfolio over to an attorney and say, go appeal all of them. And so they are going to more regularly be driving down their assessments, their taxable value. And I think that's that's likely a significant contributing factor to the inconsistency we see within lower value homes themselves. Where to the opposite, a property owner, for them to go appeal their one property, educate themselves on the process, go to the hearing, make their appeal, you know, all this to get a, a margin, you know, potentially a marginal decrease in their taxes. If they have the time, not to over overgeneralize, but Detroit tends to be a less affluent place. And there's a lot of people who are struggling just to just to hang on in many places, the idea that you would tack on this very technical, detailed kind of other process to them allows them to, over time, become real victims. Because if, if you increase someone's 
if you're 10% higher this year and 10% higher next year and 10% higher next year, what your data has shown is that over time in particular, this, these, these distortions become very meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And and then of course, you know, you have the, the compound and, and this is where we've seen fortunately a lot of progress, but, you know, certainly in the last decade, you had the compounding reality that most of these homeowners with delinquent property taxes as often as a result of high assessments shouldn't have had to pay the property taxes at all because they qualified for property tax exemptions uh, that would have you know eliminated their current year's property tax bill. But that had an even more convoluted process around applying for the property tax exemption uh, up until around 20, 2015, 2016, when fortunately it was reformed. And, and, and that then became a real tool and a real opportunity to, uh, you know, take the pressure off of assessments because you could just say, hey, look, give the assessment process some time to sort itself out. Like we just need to eliminate your tax bill because <laughs> you qualify for this exemption. And even if your tax bill is 15 or 20% lower, it's still going to be likely too much for you to afford. Right. The tax delinquency thing was the the flaming issue. The assessment issue seems to be one of those under the hood kind of structural things. Let me ask you this though, because this is where I'm I'm baffled. And I started with this narrative about assessment offices being let me let me just say antiquated. And I recognize, you know, for the people listening to this, your community might not be as antiquated as many, but I have seen I've seen so many that are so bad. If I am an assessor, I want to get things right. And let me just make this thing. I feel like most assessors I've run into generally want to get things right. I'm not uh, questioning their desire to actually be good at their job. How should I view the work that Regrid is doing? How should I how should I understand it? And what opportunity is there for me either in my systems or or working with with you or I think the natural inclination as a human is to be a little bit defensive because you're essentially short you know pointing out where like the current system is in some cases kind of laughably wrong how should I be thinking about this you know certainly as urban 3 is doing right using using regrid parcel data to inform some of their analysis and and work in North Carolina I mean I think I think one of the things that you know, beyond the sort of question of of data, um, one of the things that I, I think is encouraging that we're seeing in Detroit is a, a very serious push and discussion towards a split rate tax system. Now, I do have sympathy to some extent for the the experience of these assessors, especially in a city like Detroit, where there, you know, there's so many house, housing condition issues and you know it's the wide variation in the conditions of of, of our housing stock. Um, they are, Alex, I think, him- I, here, here in, here in Crowing County, Minnesota, they'll come out every five years to assess your house. I've, I've seen your go bang Detroit thing in five yeah. years. It is a completely different thing in some places, exactly. right? Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you. I, you know, I think that they are operating within a flawed system, right? One of the, you know, the other issues here, even if you get the residential assessments, right, you're still going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of properties across Detroit owned by speculators, right? Vacant lots and vacant houses, which even under a correct quote unquote assessment 
will produce holding costs that are next to nothing. And these guys will, you know, just sit on these properties forever until, you know, a project comes along where they can essentially take the city hostage for the property that they own. This discussion of a split rate tax system, I think, is is really encouraging and an indication that assessors are, you know, the assessors in the city and the, and the city itself is saying, the system we have here is part of the problem, right? Even if we get it right, it's still not going to be just Right, because it's we, a good point. It, it's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be a great move for the city, and and uh, have been really encouraged by this conversation around split rate. Yeah, I know. The last time you were on, we talked about the property tax foreclosure issue. I want to veer off into that just a little bit because I do think this idea, and and you brought it up a couple minutes ago about well, you don't owe the property taxes anyway. The idea of you know, many, many properties not having by law property taxes that they owed or having it forgiven them or what have you is something that I think a lot of people not in Detroit would think, what what a strange policy, what a kind of backward policy, like how can you run anything if that is your policy? But yet Detroit is, I mean, you and I have both talked about Detroit being the preview of coming attractions for many, many places. It's interesting to me how the reality on the ground in Detroit does change the policy priorities compared to other places that are kind of sliding along a little bit, not in the acute phase of of some of this suburban decline. Make the case for basically property tax forgiveness. How do you get to a point where you're like, this is a policy that makes sense? It's a very clear cost-benefit analysis at the end of the day. For one thing, I think it is worth noting that you know property taxes are a small portion of Detroit's general fund. It's like 14%, something like that. And that's all property taxes. That's not, you know, ho- homeowners are an even smaller percentage of that. 14%. And homeowners in highly distressed neighborhoods are a tiny, tiny, tiny Exactly. Fraction. So right. you're not yeah. really losing that much. Yeah, and as you said, you know, if you look at the the, you know, the images that I've collected over the years of you know these homes that go through tax foreclosure, the cost benefit analysis is really obvious. I mean, either you're going to spend twenty thousand dollars to knock that house down when someone's evicted, they you know lose the house to tax foreclosure, a speculator buys it, and then extracts as much rent as they can while putting as little into the property as possible is what we've we've seen in Detroit over the years. You know, it becomes very expensive to clean up that mess. It's far better to keep the homeowner in there. You know, beyond just keeping the homeowner in there, you know, part of the things that 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 we worked on around tax foreclosure prevention was not just eliminating the property tax that debt, but then also how can we help you repair your home? What do we need to figure out in terms of wills, trusts to make sure that this home stays in your family so that, you know, when you pass on, it moves into the hands of the next generation and stays in the family. So I think, you know, all all of these things produce far better outcomes, preserve the housing stock. And certainly if you want to talk about affordable housing and things like that, the reality is that the cheapest house that, you know, folks are ever going to be in is the house that they are in right now. And we need to make sure that they can stay in that house and that it's a safe, you know, and healthy place for them to be living. But to try to wring $1,000 of 
property taxes out of that house and wind up with a $25,000 demolition bill five years later is not the way to go. Right, right. And you were having people, for lack of being able to pay that property tax assessment, essentially the house would then go tax foreclosure, someone would buy it and basically, in many cases, kick them out or in a best case scenario, rent it back to them at prices higher than what they were you know, had they just paid the tax, it seemed like such a combination of just the finances not working at that end of the spectrum. If you're going to buy a quarter million dollar or a half million dollar or a three quarter million dollar house, there's 30 year mortgage projects for you. There's a process for you. If you've got a nine to five job or you're a white collar worker or what have you, there's a whole process for you to become housed. There's also a process for people who are, you know, slightly lower than that in the affluence scale to rent property or somehow, you know, be in a house. I'm going to say this and, and some people may push back, but I know we have a lot of programs for people who are homeless. It seemed like Detroit had this vast, huge swath of people who were not homeless, but who did not fit into any of these like traditional systems that this tax foreclosure stuff was really hitting very, very hard. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to, to the assessment question too. I, tax foreclosure just, it was the, you know, sort of the biggest force shaping housing in the city over the last 10 years. Thankfully it's, you know, that again, we, that you've seen a, a huge sea change there, but you know, when you look at where the inflated assessments came from in the last decade as well, Right. We had, I mean, I think in the middle of, what was it, 2012 to 2015, something like that, like 95% of residential transactions in Detroit were distressed sales. But distressed sales are not factored into your assessment. They're not supposed to be a part of the uh, assessment. And so you had assessments based on this minuscule portion of market activity when the overwhelming mass yeah, of the market were these, right. yeah, the market was foreclosures sales. Yeah. and cash sales and scam land contracts and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Such a wild West. I, I, I was reading something that you posted the other day about property tax delinquency and how since January, 2020, so two full years, we're down 41%. You know, the Detroit homeowners, two years plus tax delinquent down 66%. I do feel like the work that you have been part of. And again, it is very fair to say there's a lot of people on the ground doing really, I think the amazing thing about this is the bottom up nature of it. It's astounding how that kind of wild west, crazy, I'm just going to say exploitative kind of land practices are really being significantly curtailed now. And you're seeing as a result, people who are not only staying in their homes, but suddenly starting to build equity, create a, a foundation for themselves and prior generations, you know, subsequent generations. They're stabilizing neighborhoods. I'm really inspired by all of it. Detroit's still a tough place, but I mean, it's, I don't know. I feel like um, things are trending in a really, a, a much more positive direction than they were certainly a decade ago, right? Yeah. Certainly, if you look back to the you know financial crisis as the last you know prior to the pandemic, you know major crisis that hit Detroit along with the rest of the country, you know that that was a a really devastating 
sort of inflection point for the city. And it was after that, that these waves of tax foreclosures started crashing on the city. You know, I was certainly concerned when the pandemic hit that like, oh my goodness, like, are we going to see a return? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. There's going to be, you know, spiking delinquency. And instead there was sort of an opportunity to push a lot of these programs forward and, and make some real changes. And so the fact that not only did we not see things get worse, but we actually have seen a lot of progress, at least in the, I mean, the pandemic was obviously horrific for the city in, in other ways through the, the death and disease. But the fact that we've seen so much progress in in housing over the last couple of years, I think, yeah, I think is, is, is very encouraging. There's a level of stability that didn't exist, a, you know, a decade ago. Yeah. And we still have major issues. I mean, you know, but the fact that tax foreclosure is increasingly not one of them is a very, very good sign. How does this Detroit assessment gauge, this kind of model tool that you put together, how how does this kind of apply nationally? Like if I'm in some other place and I'm I'm hearing you today and I'm thinking this seems like something that my community would really benefit from. Yeah, you can always reach out to me and reach out to Regrid. Um, so I, I run a program at Regrid called Data with Purpose. And Data with Purpose is basically, a, you know, sort of a, a, a throwback to our roots when we really wanted to be working with parcel data and couldn't get it anywhere. And and we, we've been through the fire of like having to, you know, collect and maintain and figure out a way to develop a, a national parcel data set and, and assessment data set. Um, and we want to help other nonprofits, researchers, academics who need parcel data, whether that's for you know, things like the assessments or anything else that you can look at at the parcel level, any other issue that requires parcel data. And so I I lead our data with purpose program. And basically it's a way for people to apply for access to our parcel data, whether it's at the state level or the national level, whatever geography you need on a pay what you can basis for nonprofits, researchers, academics, community organizations, activists, and so, yeah, you can go to regrid.com slash purpose to see the Data with Purpose program. There's a quick application there. Come straight to me. Yeah, we have all kinds of organizations that are using our data, whether it's, you know, the Trust for Public Land using parcel data as a, you know, sort of part of their day-to-day work, which requires parcel data. We have organizations that are one of, one of the really, really interesting ones I just did a webinar with a couple of weeks ago is this group out of Western Michigan University which is responsible for maintaining the state of Michigan's well water database. And they, they inherited this job a couple of years ago and quickly found that 40% of the wells in the well water database were inaccurately placed and about a half a million weren't, weren't in the database at all. And they needed parcel data to be able to figure out where, whether these, these lat longs of uh, water wells actually fell within the appropriate parcel or not. They went, you know, we're, we're sort of banging their heads against the wall, trying to get parcel data at the county level across the state, couldn't do it. And finally came to, uh, you know, the data with purpose program. And we got them hooked up with our Esri compatible feature service. And, and they've now been able to automate like 60% of their work. As somebody who lives in Michigan and drinks water, I'm, I'm glad that they have the parcel data that they, that they need. So whether it's issues related to assessment or, or anything else that you can investigate or, or work with or need at the parcel level, 
you know, the Data with Purpose program is is here for nonprofits, researchers, academics. And I yeah, think about this stuff all day, every day and, and work with people who need it. So regrid.com slash purpose is the way to get in touch. I know where your heart is. And I know you and I have known each other for quite a while now. And, and I, I, I keep alluding to the curiosity because I know you love playing with the data and uh, seeing what can I tease out of this and how can it be used? I look at this and I see Regrid as an organization creating this national database that I think will serve in a private sector sense is really valuable for people and people are paying good money to access it because it is worth that. It does provide that value. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening today who have applications that would not be data with a purpose kind of applications that that can go directly to Regrid. But it is admirable that you know, under the hood, the organization that you were a part of in, in the early days has now, I'm going to say it, and you know, I didn't push back on this, but I feel like has now grown to the level where it can satiate your curiosity at least a, at least a bit, right? Because you're, you're getting a kick out of being able to help all these other places is my, is my assessment, you know, sitting here watching you. Absolutely. I love hearing about the work that other people are doing and their, their use cases and, and figuring out how what we have can be of use to them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then the other side of the equation is just, you know, I think we are all at Regrid really obsessed with and enamored by parcels as, you know, just the absolute most fundamental cellular level of how we've organized, you know, the physical land of this place. And they're just, yeah, you know, they're just, they're just such a fundamental part of the world around us. And it's still, it's, you know, it's just, it's been so hard for so long to really work with parcel data. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's very important to us that people who are doing public benefit oriented work have a way to get to the parcel data that they need to work on the issues that are, are important to them, their mission, their organization, the people around them. That's what Data with Purpose is is for. And uh, yeah, we just love parcels. Just love, uh, ne- <laughs> never, 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 never ending, uh, you know. Uh, the love uh, affair with, how, with Exactly. With how parcels. much you can, data you can create and inject into the parcel. They're just, they're just fascinating. I do remember when you were at the Rocket Community Fund, how being able to use this data and get maps into the hands of people who are going door to door and knocking on people's doors and saying, look, you don't have to pay property taxes. Here's the form. Let me help you with this. And really through that, having this exponential transformation of of the neighborhood, but starting with people's lives. I, I mean, to me, it's a very powerful application. And, and my guess is that there's a lot, there's a lot of people out there across the US who are facing similar type of neighborhood focused or regional focused type of thing that would benefit a lot from the databases that, that you put together. Yeah. And you alluded to another, you know, sort of tool that that comes out of the regrid kit, which is yeah, our, our mobile app and the ability to look up parcel data on the fly, you know, through the regrid mobile app, and then also to create surveys where you can actually like go out and knock on doors and do do canvassing. I have found it to be a very helpful tool in taking that step of humble observation as, you know, going back to the strong towns method, right? Like 
what does humility and observation really look like? Like go stand on someone's doorstep and just talk to them, right? Ask the right questions and hear about where they struggle, you know, attach that to a parcel record so, so that you've got all the assessment data and tax data and everything else that you need. But that becomes a really powerful approach at, at scale. I want to ask you about two other things, maybe kind of related, but not not really. That just are fun for me. Gubing Detroit. I did not realize that it was used in the Detroit bankruptcy stuff. Tell people what Gubing Detroit is. And then tell the story about how you found it being used at like high levels of, of discussion. Yeah. So early on when I started working with Regrid, it was spending a lot of time driving around the city and surveying property and talking to people. And yeah, this was 2011, 2012. It was a lot of distress, a lot of vacant homes, a lot of fires. And it was a really, really difficult time in a lot of the neighborhoods. And so I, was sort of naturally curious, like, well, when did this start to happen? Because uh, I, you know, I had only moved to the city in 2011. And I think like a lot of people probably, you know, kind of assumed that like this had just been this way since the 60s. You know, at the time, I realized that Google had driven through Detroit and taken street view imagery in like 2009. And Bing, their street view competitor called Streetside had gone through the city in like 2011, 2012. And so I just started looking at these houses in 2009 and 2011, 2012, and seeing this extraordinary difference in just two years. You know, these houses that had been fine, occupied, you know, decent condition, just destroyed two years later. And so I started taking screenshots of these homes and I named it something stupid, which is Goobing Detroit, a you know, combination uh, mashup of like a Google before and, and after. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't realize at the time <laughs> how significant it might might become. So I, I would have maybe given it a better name had I had I realized that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I started um, you know, collecting collecting this imagery. And a couple years later, right around the time of the bankruptcy, Google released its archival street view imagery through Time Machine. And that's when I sort of went from having just like 2009, 2012 to like 2009, 11, 13, 15. You started to get more and more frames in the slow motion picture of, you know, this deterioration driven by tax foreclosure, evictions, things like that. And so, I, you know, I was just collecting all this stuff and putting it on a, on a blog at goobingdetroit.com. It went totally viral at the, at the time. It was in, you know, newspapers in like Japan and Germany and all of the, you know, which totally freaked me out. I didn't really know how to like engage with it. I just kind of withdrew. Months later, I realized that it had also been shown as evidence uh, during uh, Detroit's bankruptcy trial. And and the creditors tried to get it thrown out, saying that it was like hearsay um, and, <laughs> and, you know, could, couldn't, couldn't verify the validity of the images. Uh, but I've continued to collect and update Goobing Detroit imagery. And, and you know, especially today, I, I just went through and, you know, actually the, be- the best place to see some of this latest imagery is actually on, on my Substack, which is again the, uh, called the chargeback. Well, that was going to be my next question. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a new frame that is now available through, through Google street view and actually the city of Detroit started their own street view program. They publish imagery via Mapillary, and they have a car that drives the city a couple times a year. It's really good. Um, it's a very, very cool thing. 
that they've they've been doing, I think, started by a couple of ex uh, regrid people who who work at the city of Detroit, actually. Yeah. But there's this new frame in Detroit from, you know, the you know, the pandemic era, which is really interesting because you have sort of 2009 to 2000, you know, 16, 17 imagery, which is a lot of decline, deterioration of homes going through tax foreclosure. That's 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 really what I'm, you know, trying to capture and, and focus on evictions and things like that as well. And then things really start to change. Today, you know, either these homes that have that were deteriorating are gone. They've been demolished and it's just vacant lots or they've been rehabbed. You know, there was a big wave of rehab in, in the city during the pandemic, which I identified out of Regrid's uh, U.S. Postal Service vacancy data. There's this very under the under the radar wave of uh, rehab of, of vacant homes during the pandemic. And then there are areas that are still struggling and the homes look the same as they did five or six years ago. But it's, yeah, it's just extraordinary to see this change over time just sort of incidentally captured by these Google Street View cars. I love the imagery and 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 just uh, love spending time, you know, clicking around the city and and other you know, do it obviously anywhere in the country since Google's everywhere. But it's yeah, fa- fascinating way to look at change over time. This was an interesting thing to me, and I I, I feel bad, you know, it went viral a little bit in sense of like like rubbernecking almost, right? Like we're watching decline. I found it fascinating because it really was the warning where if we don't deal with this tax foreclosure thing, here's because you have, it was stunning. You would have these like houses with people sitting on the porch and people clearly like maintaining the yards and like, you know, life happening. And then in this very short period of time, you would have no house at all. And it would go through these grotesque changes. And to me, it was this thing, like from a policy standpoint, if we could just support it here, we wouldn't get to here and here. But now you have this kind of happy ending and it's not, I mean, I'm not painting it as all rosy, but it is really cool to see how now in some of these instances, you're like, here's where it was. And now look, it's been reborn and here's where it is today. And you get this sense of like, okay, wow, like that, that is not just arresting decline. It is actually going in the opposite direction. And what a beautiful trajectory for a neighborhood. I feel bad about the rubbernecking part because there has been a little bit of, you know, let's just gawk at, at Detroit's suffering. I recognize the policy nature of it, but I'm also, I I hope a lot of those people who saw that before can come back and be inspired by the notion that, you know, there is a way to turn this around and there is a, there is a new tomorrow really. Yeah. For all of the data that, you know, we've been able to bring to bear on issues like tax foreclosure. Yeah. There's nothing more effective than those images. Nothing drives it home like those images. I think a lot of the, you know, the sort of rubber rubbernecking and ruin porn stuff in, in Detroit, it, it often focuses on like the city's like sort of, you know, you know, big skyscrapers and big buildings and things like that. And that just never was the story to me. It was the neighborhoods. It's the, where people actually live and their homes. My hope with the imagery was always like in a, in a way that I think is different from some of the more like monumental you know, the Packard plants and things like that. When you see someone's home, you you sort of just have to ask, like, how did that happen? It becomes a helpful entry point into a more 
hopefully substantial like understanding of 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 what's been going on. So you're writing at the chargeback on Substack. Yes. People should just the chargeback. Talk about the name a little bit. Yeah, so it's called the chargeback that the URL is detroit.substack.com. I guess I, I got to the Detroit <laughs> Detroit slug for sub Substack early, but yeah, you can find it at detroit.substack.com. So the chargeback yeah, is, an, is a, a reference to this mechanism inside the tax foreclosure and tax delinquency system in Michigan. It's a really crazy, esoteric thing. But basically, I, the shortest way to describe what the chargeback is, is so every year in March, cities in Michigan turn over their delinquent tax roll to their county treasurer. The county treasurer cuts a check to those cities for whatever was uncollected in property taxes the prior year. And the county treasurer then inherits the responsibility and right to go collect those delinquent taxes. If they're not collected in the next two and a half years, ultimately they are tax foreclosed, put into an auction and put up for sale as a last ditch attempt to try to recover you know, the back taxes that are owed and to you know, try to get the properties back into quote unquote productive use. What happens is as properties are in delinquency, these county treasurers assess 18% interest on your delinquent property taxes. Um, they sell bonds to finance all of this at about three or 4% interest. So that difference is pure profit to the county treasurers. They are, they are the payday lenders for, uh, that's right. you know, yeah. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And then ultimately these properties are, you know, tax foreclosed and, and put into an auction. What happens is when the county settles up on the delinquent taxes that they had to go collect, it's not done on the aggregate. It's done on a property by property basis. So if the county collects more on a property than was owed because of, you know, fees and things like that, or it's sold at auction for more than was owed, that's profit kept by the county. On the other hand, if a property is foreclosed and doesn't sell at auction, in which case the county gets no money for it, that balance that was not collected goes into the chargeback. And so basically what happens is at the end of this process, county tallies everything up, anything where they win, right? They make more than was owed. That's profit for the county. Anything where they lost, they didn't get as much as was owed, that goes into the chargeback. And so the following year, when the when a city comes back and says, okay, hey, we didn't collect this much in property taxes this year, the county says, okay, we're going to sell a bond for that amount, but we didn't collect this much from you last year. And so that's the chargeback. And so we'll sell that bond, but we're going to keep the portion that's represented by the taxes we didn't collect previously and give you a check for uh, you know, what you didn't collect this year minus the chargeback. So it is heads we win, tails you lose. Yep. They've set themselves up to, yeah, make it make it good either way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an extraordinary system. There's a Supreme Court case coming up this spring that has to do with, what's the term that I'm, I'm looking for? Uh, unconstitutional takings. This question of profiting when a home sells at a property sells at auction for more than the tax debt owed. It's actually a case in Minnesota, but there was a similar one in Michigan a couple of years ago that the Michigan Supreme Court ruled on. Very uh, interesting stuff. I mean, I always tell people, if you want to see the worst in, this is me, you're not saying this. 
I'm saying if you want to see the worst in top-down government, go to Detroit. If you want to see the best in bottom-up governance, go to Detroit. And you know, to me, I would like to find a way to 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 bring those closer together because I, I do feel like there's a lot of really great people. It's a lot of people with big hearts trying to do good things in Detroit. We are fighting the system to do good in many ways. And, you know, it's frustrating when that happens. It's frustrating when like that is the thing. But through that, you know, there's a lot of really great stuff shining through and I'm I'm continually inspired by it. And I'm grateful every time I get a chance to talk to you because it, it makes me feel good about the world. And I love parcels too, man. We're recording this the day after Valentine's Day. And I got, I have three Valentines. I have my wife and then I have my two daughters. Same as me. You have your wife and two daughters. Yeah, but you have parcels too, man. They love you back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Alex Alsup with Regrid. Follow him on the chargeback. You can also follow him on Twitter at, I think you're at Alex Alsup, right? It's at, at Zug Islander. Oh, it's at Zug Islander. That's right. Because I, I catch you on Twitter. You're one of the handful of people that I follow. And then go to uh, regrid.com forward slash purpose. If you think you're in a position where you would uh, you would benefit from free or reduced cost uh, access to parcels, um, Alex is is anxious to make that happen for as many places as he can because he has a big heart and wants to see everybody out there doing bottom up good. So, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Chuck. Great to see you. Nice to see you. You take care and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.